Hi, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Today on Rational in Portland, we're talking to Philip Tobias. Philip is a middle-aged man who was at one point homeless, but was able to get back on his feet and is now getting his college degree at Portland State. On Twitter, his handle is at SillyFlippy, at S-I-L-L-Y-F-L-I-P-P-Y. He became Twitter famous when Andy No, who's now known as a sort of Twitter journalist documenting Antifa and the follies of the left wing, tweeted out a YouTube video of Phillips' testimony at City Hall, which consisted of confronting Portland City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty about what Philip perceived to be discrepancies between her public statements about her military service and her military records. We're going to go ahead and link to that in the show notes, that video of Philip confronting Commissioner Hardesty. As you'll hear, Philip used a Freedom of Information Act request or a FOIA request to obtain Commissioner Hardesty's military records. This interview took place right after Philip received Commissioner Hardesty's military records, but before Philip confronted Commissioner Hardesty at that city council meeting on October 12th. Philip messaged me after he testified, and he said he had a few minutes to talk to Commissioner Mingus Maps before he testified, and that he felt Commissioner Maps was very open, very kind, seemed to be a great guy. In this interview, we'll talk to Philip about his journey out of homelessness and, of course, his confrontation with Commissioner Hardesty at city council, what he perceives to be the discrepancies between her public statements about her military records and what he thinks her military records actually say. The top of the show just dives right into Philip and I talking about his academic journey, what he ultimately plans to do with his life now that he's starting college, and the kinds of things that he's interested in. Here's Philip Tobias. That's the goal eventually, but to be honest, I'm not sure if I'm smart enough in math to be a doctor, but I, I'm more analytical and like written words, so I think if medical school does is in my future, I think I'd be a good possibly constitutional lawyer or possibly a male practice attorney. And researching you, I saw that you are an attorney, which is really cool. You know, Sharon Myron is an attorney and a doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, well, I just like politics. I have She no might have intention. some tips. She might have some tips well, for you about going to law school, medical school, and then running as a politician <laughs> oh I, I i i do not want to be a politician oh you don't i'm a very i no, no not at all i'm a very private person i just there's no chance i'd put myself out there like that so you want to just work behind the scenes um possibly yes like when you say you're interested in politics do you mean theoretically i mean you're obviously you're influencing politics on twitter i don't know how many followers you have now but you're certainly talked, oh, I mean, I was just at a Portland party event the other day, and you're certainly talked about quite a bit. Really? Wow, I'm, I'm shocked. 
I mean, my tiny Twitter account, like 1,400 people. And so I said, like, I'm taking a political science class, and you can definitely tell the leftist tent. They were talking about the other day where a student was saying, you know, all these Republican and conservatives were in one place in Alaska. Maybe we should firebomb it. And the professor didn't exactly correct them. So it's kind of really disappointing. Are you serious? Yeah. Are you com- Oh, no, you're so- probably not comfortable talking about that on air, huh? That's a great story, but you're probably not comfortable talking about that because you're. Are you worried that would out you? No. I mean, you can use my name. I've been. I use my legal name on my profile for over a decade. It it isn't until recently that you know I went more anonymous. And the weird thing about going anonymous was my interaction on Twitter skyrocketed once I took my name off my account. Because, you know, a fear is, you know, you see the Antifa account, you know, basically to firebomb you or as we've seen recently, destroy your local, locally owned coffee business. That's right. Now, Philip, you're a vet, you're a veteran, and it's my understanding that you felt like there was some discrepancy between Joanne Hardesty's public statements and her military records and you went ahead and you did a... FOIA, Freedom of Information Request, for those records. Tell us about what you found in those documents. Well, you know, I started in Medavia myself, and I noticed some timeline differences between what she's reported publicly to the Portland Mercury and, you know, what I got back. You know, she served from 1978 to 1983. She's definitely a veteran. When the Portland Mercury endorsed her for her city council run in 2018, she, the Hersey campaign gave them information that says she was honorably discharged from active duty in 1979 and then went into the Navy Reserve into 1984, which is basically impossible. And then on the city website, you know, and she's repeated this through numerous newspapers that she served with the USS Samu Gompers from 1978 to 1983, which is impossible because no one person would serve that long aboard a single ship. And how do you, how do you know that? Yes, I served four years in the army, national guard, and I did about another three years in the Navy. And you don't, you want to serve aboard an active duty ship as a reservist. You would do, and you know, and on the other side, I kind of, I can kind of forgive her for that a bit, just because, you know, if they said, where did you serve? And you would say, you know, I served here, here. And you wouldn't really break it down by each command. So I can kind of understand that. But I think she does it to make it appear that, you know, she was this gung-ho, ocean-going person. And her claims to serve five years upon this ship, she said a little more over 13 months. And is this based, you know this based on your FOIA request? Yes. What I got back, it didn't include anything about discharge. So I can't for say, I can't for certain say she has an honorable discharge. Right. So the FOIA request, yeah, the FOIA request that you got back had no, um, it it didn't authenticate her claim that she was honorably discharged. There were no discharge papers in the FOIA request period, correct? No, correct. And can you appeal that? 
Um, no, there's limited records with that kind of stuff. The only way we would get that information was if she would publicly release her discharge. And you know, that's not uncommon for military veterans to release their discharge papers. I mean, DeSantis did it, Cotton did it, and it's a pretty common thing to do. Yeah, why doesn't she do, that's interesting. Why doesn't she do that? You'd think she'd do that. Yeah, it's only gonna help her, especially among, you know, more conservative voters. They're like, yay, military veteran. Yeah, I mean, to the extent people maybe disagreed with a policy or two of hers and felt like more centrist or moderate people in Portland. I know a fair amount of those people. I think a lot of them voted for her because they respected her military service. Right, and Loretta Smith, at the same time that came out, she kind of hinted, well, the Portland Mercury implied Loretta Smith was saying she had a dishonorable discharge, and she got tore apart for that, and it's probably one of the reasons she lost. And I'm trying to, I mean, it was all sorts of stuff from, I hope I get this right, but it was things like Joanne brought a male that Smith had accused of treating her poorly and sat, you know, brought him up on stage or something um, during a debate. Um, I was, it was almost sort of Trump-like in in the way that Trump brought uh, Clinton accusers, Bill Clinton accusers to Hillary's, his debate with Hillary. It was it was a lot of strange stuff between the two of them. And then wasn't it Loretta that accused Joanne of improperly managing the NAACP funds? Yes. And the, the, the more I read into her presidency, the NAACP, absolutely corrupt. And, you know, you have people like Mr. Jane Posey, who was an ex-campaign uh, fundraiser of hers and a, a very important Portland, uh, he's running for office himself, I believe is mayor, an important black community member. He despises Joanne Hardesty. And he wrote a pretty long article about how he doesn't like her, how he doesn't trust her. He talked about some of her personality deficiencies that was like on a blog post or something. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, he writes a website. Philip, how did you get interested in all this? Well, I moved out here in 2008 and it was a different city. I was probably one of the first wave of uh, immigrants to move to the city, I guess, when it became really popular. And, you know, since the homeless declaration in 2015, I've just seen the city skyrocket to the bottom and um, we can do better. You say as an immigrant, where did you immigrate from? No, I, I'm not like a foreign immigrant. Oh, you I mean a from, state? Uh, Illinois. You moved from yes, Illinois. Moved from Illinois. What mm -hmm. city in Illinois? Um... LaSalle. I lived there for a couple months with my brother. I've lived in uh, several small cities in Illinois. And so have you always been interested in, I mean, I would say you're, I, I would say you are actively involved in politics because your Twitter account is very active. I think it influences a lot of people. I, I think people downplay 
the amount of sway and influence that smart people on Twitter have over politics generally, but certainly in the teeny tiny microcosm that is Portland. And I would say that you're a politically involved person. Do you feel like you've always been a politically involved person? Well, let me get, once again, say I'm just shocked that anyone even reads my Twitter because I only interact with a few anonymous accounts, the same anonymous accounts. And so I'm kind of shocked that you mentioned that, you know, my Twitter account's named in like a party you're at. I'm just shocked. But going back, you know, I'm 43. And so I can remember some of the scandals of the last 30 years. But I was completely apolitical until about 2015. And something, and just watching some of the media narratives form in 2015 just ignited something inside of me. And I just fell in love with politics and how people form their narratives um, and how just blatantly dishonest the mainstream media is. It was just shocking to me. So when did you form this Twitter account and what was your, what was the impetus? Uh, my Twitter account was formed in 2009. I didn't really use, I, I didn't use it until about 2016. That's when it became more active. And can we say what your handle is? Are you comfortable with that? Of, co- of course. Oh, it's uh, sillyflippy at twitter.com. And this, the photo you picked is so, who's the, who's the person in the photo? The photo you picked is so interesting. Oh, that's me. Is it really? Oh, that's me. Yes. Am I, wearing, am I wearing a suit or the raccoon hat? You're wearing a suit, but I've seen you in the raccoon hat, too. In this, right now, you're wearing a suit. Wow. That's a great photo. What hap- yeah, what happened, it's more inspirational. During COVID, I got kind of lazy, and I gained about 60 pounds. And that's what you're seeing right now. And so that's more inspirational for me to get back in shape. Yeah, I think that happened to... Yeah. I think that happened to most of the world. Um, And, you know, it's it's just, it's so crazy in Oregon. I know a lot of states did this, but it was just mind-blowing to me how... My understanding is that the number one risk factor for COVID is age, and the number two is weight. And what I found so bizarre is the way that particularly blue areas did things like close gyms, rope off playgrounds. You know, California went as far as to fill in a skate park with cement. Um, We closed gardens. You couldn't even use the Japanese garden anymore to hike around. Um, Beaches were closed. I mean, that was crazy. There was like a decree that came out of the city of Cannon Beach that they were closed to all visitors. You couldn't, you couldn't, be outside yeah and definitely the covid and some of the uh public safety and health announcements you know as we you know as we become pot as we get hindsight available you know we're able to look back and see once again that narrative forming like the myocarditis uh, myocarditis uh, yeah mm-hmm. yes thank you the heart inflammation and how so many experts who spoke up and said, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to handle this by shutting everything down. And, you know, several people on Twitter were basically canceled for saying, you know, I think this affects 
um, women's uh, periods. Mm, right. And it turned out years later, you know, more mainstream articles came out and confirmed that was true. But if you said that a couple years ago, you were canceled for um, misinformation. And as we move on, I think we're going to see more and more, you know, what a horrible mistake they made. Ugh. Well, what's so funny is this is a, the, the OHA is an administrative agency in this state that has taken COVID and as they said in Spinal Tap, turned it up to 11. And I mean, everybody had to get vaccinated. We all had to wear masks. I mean, we, we were the only state for a very long period of time that had a outdoor mask mandate. I still think we're the only state that has a permanent, most people don't know this, a permanent mask mandate that exists generally, but also in schools, which means that the OHA, it doesn't, people think, no, 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 that's not, it's not a mask mandate. People are walking around without masks. You're a liar. No, there is an Oregon administrative rule that says that it's an emergency that that masks are necessary to fight against COVID and that the OHA at any time it decides to direct can tell you to put a mask on, which means that it doesn't have to go through the ordinary administrative law channels and it doesn't have to go through process. It doesn't have to accept comment. It doesn't have to accept testimony. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't have to do any kind of rigmarole to get the mask back on. It just can order you to put the mask back on at any time. And I think we're the only state I know of that has this. Right. And, um, and you know, um, as far as on clinic, like healthcare clinical sites, masks are still mandated. You have to wear That's clinic, right. doctors, physician, nurses. And that goes uh, against go CDC uh, guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. It's like trust the science until we disagree. Right. <laughs> How did you get so interested in Joanne Hardesty that you foiled her military records? I find that so interesting. You know, I'm not sure what draw my attention to her because I really, I'm not, I don't really care about the Portland City Council, but it was just, I, I honestly don't remember what drew me to that. But just some, the Portland Mercury endorsement article is what drew me to get her for her military records because as they said either Portland Mercury was lying and it, you know there is a chance that Portland Mercury Porter didn't know how to read the campaign records the Hersey campaign gave her I mean that's that that might have happened or the Hersey campaign just basically gave them a bunch of bullshit so on LinkedIn, if you go to LinkedIn, it's still up now. She claims to have associates in business from the University of Baltimore Community College. She said every election filing she's ever um, filed with the city, it's it it says she um, she didn't graduate. She did she did one point five years, so she does not have a degree. And you know it's just an associate. It's not a big deal. I don't know why she would even bother. But I think she's smart enough not to lie in the election filings because it's a felony to do so. And Oregon has ensnared a couple politicians for lying about college degrees. But then there's the misstatement that the police, not the rioters, were starting fires during the 100 plus nights of rioting. 
That was pretty. Yeah, was that was pretty fire. big. That was a pretty big accusation. Yeah, what she made that statement to an interview with Marie Claire, and she was saying they were setting fires to target the protesters, which. And, you know, as far as Joanne, she has a very legitimate complaint about the hit-and-run incident. And, you know, the police shouldn't have leaked that. I, I think the PPB roundly condemned those actions. They absolutely did. I believe it was three officers. Right. One was fired, and the other two were disciplined. Right. And, and so, personally, I believe with Hardesty calling the Portland police liars for sending fires and the Portland police with the hint run, personally, I think they're even. And with Joanne filing a $5 million lawsuit for defamation is ridiculous because, you know, the information came out immediately, immediately that she wasn't involved in that hit and run accident. So, I'm really hopeful that that claim gets dismissed or Gerald's. Don't give her any money. Uh, what's interesting to me, do you know anything about this? My understanding is, um, as much as I like him, although I hated his park ranger program, as much as I like Mingus Maps, my understanding is he's in charge of Bureau of Emergency Operations. Has he spoken at all to this delay time? I think so. And a couple, um, not two, I read an article that they, 911, they switched their system in a lot of other states like Minneapolis or cities, they switched to a similar system or having major problems with it. So I think a lot of the slowdown is basically passed on the system they switched to because they now have to go through like page after page after page of prescriptive responses. And that's really slowed down a lot of the responsiveness. And you know, I, I like Mingus, I voted for him. I, I respect that he is coming out with a separate charter reform plan. So generally, I'm a fan. Oh, no. I, I think he is far and away the best city councilor we currently have. There's absolutely no question if we didn't have him on there, we would be in a enormous world of hurt. And this Ulysses pack that he has, I think, is going to really assist in whatever efforts uh, and headway we can make in terms of defeating this charter reform proposal. Do, what, if anything, do you know or have an understanding about with this charter reform proposal? Have you dug into that at all? You know, in the uh, current reform plan, you know, they do inc dramatically increase the number of uh, members. But the problem with that is you're going to have these, I believe, extremists you know, you're going to have one or two elected with 50% of the vote, but a lot of them are only going to need 25% of the vote plus one to get elected. And I think we're going or to less. see a lot of... Or less. Or less. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of weird coalitions form. In Baltimore, they had a multi-member district, and it was an absolute debacle. And the guy who helped demolished the Baltimore system, I believe he actually moved to Portland. And he and he testified over and over and over again in front of the commission, like multi-member districts are not gonna work. It's gonna be disastrous. Because what happens is the these multi-member districts, they form together to form small coalitions and then they hide behind each other's vote. So where do you consider yourself on the political spectrum? 
Um, I guess gun to my head, I would consider myself more of a libertarian, live and let live, free market. You know, I, I do, I am registered Republican, just because, you know, I would like to win some elections. But generally just conservative, live and let live, free market, conservative. Doesn't it concern you being a Republican in Portland? Because my sense is that Portland is so blue. And in fact, Oregon, because Oregon is a city state and Portland really decides the governor, mm -hmm. uh, Portland decides really kind of everything. Don't you feel like, I, I mean, we have closed primaries, which I think is a big problem. I think we've got to have open primaries that has to stop. But in the meantime, because we have closed primaries, don't you feel frustrated that you, you're not really going to have a say as a Republican? And you're absolutely right about the open primary problem. But I think we have to remember it's Oregon isn't democratically controlled, you might think. Uh, we, at least in, like, for the governorship over the last few cycles, Republicans routinely get 40, 42% of the vote. It's just like you were saying, Portland, Salem, Bend, they told us in the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, well, if I were you, and I'm not a Republican, but I considered changing my registration from Democrat to independent. And the only reason, well, I think I did it for like a second. And then I immediately re realized how idiotic that was and changed it back because um, I realized I wasn't going to have a say. I mean, I wanted to be able to vote for Tobias Reed over Tina Kotek, for instance. And it, it, had I been an independent, I wouldn't have had a say at all. You know, I'm pretty active on Reddit, just like reading someone in the Portland subreddit, just reading people's various opinions. And a lot of people explain, like, you know, Democrats are getting complacent and they're fucking up and we want change. And like, we're not going to vote for the Republican because, you know, no, but we are going to vote for Betsy. Just as a giant wake the hell up Democratic Party of Oregon vote. Um, all Tina Kotek has to do to win convincingly is say, hey, we're going to crack down on crime. We're going to fix the ballot measure to decriminalize drugs without treatment, which, you know, we were kind of promised the two would go hand in hand. So all she has to do to win like 60, 70 percent of the vote is crack down on crime. And, and but she can't. She's so hemmed in by some of her far left. Her base. police. Yeah, she's so hemmed in by a base, she can't just say basic common sense things. Like, you know, we're going to crack down on catalytic converter theft. We're going to crack down on some of these other issues. Why do you think it is, I, I, the gun thing's an issue, but why do you think it is that Betsy doesn't have more support? Because she's pro-choice and everybody is so darn focused, even though Oregon is the only state in the country that has no restrictions on abortion. Nobody seems to understand this. Europeans think we're monsters. In fact, most people in the rest of the United States think we're monsters. You could walk into a doctor overdue to give birth and get an abortion. I, I, I think most people don't understand that. And it's protected ironclad by the legislature. The governor is not going to single-handedly overturn all these protections on abortion in Oregon. And Christine Drazen has said that she's not going to. But for God's sake, we cannot take our abortion glasses off and look at this election in any other way. And Tina's been very clever about that, I think. She is so smart, 
smart, smart about making this about abortion because everybody's falling in line with that. Every time I talk to people about who they're voting for um, and they say, you know, I don't like the state of Oregon. I'm a little interested in Betsy. And I bring up Christine Drazen immediately. They're like, I'm not voting for somebody who's not pro-choice. So I wonder what your take is on why Betsy is not getting more traction. Is it the gun thing? Well, I I just want to address Vatina thing really quick. She's been extremely smart and tactical. The the governor isn't going to, even through his active order, there's nothing the governor can do to affect abortion rights. But with Tina constantly hammering on the abortion issue, like it's, it's extremely tactical and smart because most voters won't know that, you know, that's uh, the legislator. There's nothing a governor can do to change that. But as far as Betsy, I think a lot, you know, I've just heard various opinions, you know, she's pro cutting down the forest, she, you know, the submachine gun. And, you know, she's a corporate stooge, basically. But they say the same thing about Drazen, too. Because, you know, Phil Knight recently made the a million-dollar um, endorsement to a Drazen. I know. Well, you know, he's, re- he's not a dummy. He's reading the polls. He wants to vote for whoever's going to beat Kotak. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Betsy's is can't. I, I think he... he I, I don't know him at all. I've never met him. I don't really understand his his political leanings. But I think, I, I mean, I'm aligned with him in the sense that if I could put somebody in the governorship, it would be Betsy. But I'm going to, I might vote Republican for the first time in my entire life. I'm just going to vote for whoever's going to, whoever I think has the best choice, chance of beating Kotek. Yeah, and that's why I'm holding my vote. Um, I'm going to vote for either right. Betsy or, or or Christina, we're going to see toward the end who's polling the highest, and I'm going to vote for that person. You know, it just is a testament how far Democrats have moved left. A lot of the things Obama said would be considered Republican or conservative today, like his views on illegal immigration. He yeah. would, wouldn't, he probably wouldn't be nominated for saying, like, hey, let's secure the border. It just kind of just shows how far left they've moved Obama would be considered right wing I think by today's standards and I think Hillary too and I think that's why Hillary lost so many votes to the Bernie bros and those kind of people because they felt like she was beholden to she's beholden to capitalism she's beholden to Wall Street she's an elitist she's um you know, and 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 that's a double-edged sword, right? Like the far lefties hated her, and the right wing hated her because she wasn't talking to the blue collar people, whose jobs mm-hmm. had all been disintegrated by free trade, which, by the way, yeah. was enacted through her husband, right? I mean, that's kind of interesting. Right. The blue collar mm-hmm. guy from Arkansas started free trade. On the yeah, other hand, that's why you know, all these poor people have flat screen TVs and live. I mean, I think if you're poor in America, you actually live a pretty nice life because of free off the backs of Uyghurs and these eight year olds in China. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, the recent debate as far as like California banning all gas cars by 2030 
But I don't think people realize how environmentally bad electric cars are and their batteries. So we just go from, you know, not drilling oil to like having poor African children strip mining African countries for lithium. And like lithium batteries are hugely poisonous. And so I don't think people, it just shocked me, you know, if people say like, oh, gasoline, bad, bad, bad. But, you know, you look at these electric batteries and they're just as bad. Yeah, I know. I, I, know, know. I know, completely off topic. No, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's, it's, there's a swath of contradictions. Um, I want to touch on the Drazen thing first. Yeah, like, please do. No, okay, no Republican in Oregon is going to have any problem whatsoever with her being pro-choice. You know, I think we're just happy to have a different viewpoint. And so I don't think she would lose a single Republican voter just for saying, hey, I'm pro-choice, which is strategically smart. How, how did you end up in Portland? Well, I was looking to move from Illinois, and I had a couple options. I was either going to move to Juneau, Alaska, Portland, Oregon, or possibly Las Vegas. But I like the rain and the, the more moderate weather, and so I picked Portland. And so how do you feel about being a Republican who lives in Portland and is about to well, go I mean, to it, Portland State? by the way, where Peter Bogosian claims that he was, you know, basically forced out for his conservative viewpoint. Well, you know, it's not like I'm walking around wearing a Trump t-shirt, which probably get me murdered. <laughs> so, and, and so... True. But I, I will say this about Portland State University. A lot of, you know, I, I read campus reform and the college fix about some of the issues facing conservatives and college campuses. And so far, I found, you know, I've only been in like two, three weeks into my college experience. And so far, it's been really moderate. I haven't really saw anything crazy yet, except for, you know, the political science professor not exactly condemning a student for wanting to firebomb a group of Republicans. But so far, it's been, I've been surprised and so do you feel like at Portland State you're going to be able to have nuanced conversations? It depends on the department, I would think. I, like, I wouldn't go into the education department and say anything too conservative. But, and, you know, and I, you know, there's not exactly any conservative groups on campus. There's no yeah for young Republicans or anything like that. But as I said, so far I've been somewhat pleased with how moderate everything seems. Which was kind of shocking to me. I thought it was going to be crazy pronouns and uh, right. gender polit gender and racial identity politics. But so far, that really hasn't been any of that so far. You know, uh, my understanding is that Portland State is kind of a commuter school, that the average student is a little bit older that there's a fair amount of a foreign student population. Mm -hmm. Do you, have you oh, found yeah. all that to be true? Yeah, I think the average age is about 30. And, you know, there's a huge Saudi Arabian. Yes, there is, yeah. Middle Eastern culture. Because, you know, those countries actually fund the students to come study in America and then right. bring their talents back home. What is your next politically activist project, if any? Well, um, 
preparing for this interview last night, I did some a little bit more research into Hardesty, and I can reveal for the first time here with you. Okay, Joanne Hardesty, I think, I'm not sure if you read the Oregonian article that said she never registered one of her consulting companies, and how the Oregonian speculated that not only did she not file any annual report, she probably didn't file taxes on some of that business income. And so based on her LinkedIn, I ran the name of her other consulting businesses. She's had three into the Secretary of State website. And it seems like none of the consulting businesses she owned were ever registered with the state. And while doing an internet search, I found an article and she also had consulting contracts with Portland Public Schools. Now, let's just put that in perspective. This was a non-registered business getting city contracts and doing city work without being registered, which to me is just a shocking oversight. And, you know, Portland- Shocking lack of oversight, yeah, yes. But, you know, Portland has a history of that. You know, uh, in December, the Oregonian reported that, you know, they wanted to give that ex-con felon, Leanna Woodley, $12 million, when a simple background check would have showed, you know, she was a horrific felon. We know with the multitude of financial crimes. Well, and of course, now she's suing the city because they reneged on that contract. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going back to like all the money, wasted money between like non-registered companies having city and state contracts and us losing $5 million through cyber phishing experiments. It really makes you, you know, the city and states have pumped, I want to say off the top of my head, like $100 million into some of these local nonprofits. Yes. And there's, absolute, there's absolutely zero oversight. I've gone back to some of their websites for him and filed their form 990 which kind of details how they spend the money they haven't filed it since like 2018 2019 so we have no idea where these extra hundreds of millions of dollars are going to these local contracts well and you know and mingus they, wanted wanted to look at those did you read about that mingus wanted to look at their their form 990s for that for that Fakakta clean energy fund the city auditor came out a while back and she did a huge audit calling out all these deficiencies. We're years into this system and they don't have any basic safeguards on it. And there's also questions on how they're distributing their um, funds to these various nonprofits. Yeah, and, and uh, I, the tax dollars they have amassed under that are the amount is mind-blowing yeah way more than they ever thought that's right that's exactly right in fact they're raking so much in it's like they don't know what to do with it so what do you think you're going to testify um you told me at city council talk about that what are you going to say okay i'm going to do that on the 12th and you know i've kind of worked out a speech in my head a little bit well, like I said, I've been working my head and yeah, I'm kind of nervous about it. And I, I think I'm going to go through with it. I'm just going to ask her about LinkedIn, about having a college degree. And, you know, and it's also on her Wikipedia article that she has a college degree. 
I'm also going to ask her about her military records and politely ask her to release her DD-214 to prove that she has an honorable discharge. You're going to go on, on into a city council meeting and ask her all these things at the meeting? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I only have three minutes. And so... I hope you I, do. I only have three minutes. Yeah, I, I think I am. And, you know, I'm going to be polite, of course. I'm just going to say, of course. hey... You know, I've emailed you three times. A year later, you haven't got back to me, except for when it comes to donations. Can you, you know, you won't handle this privately, so maybe, you know, let's have the discussion publicly. I'm more than willing to call out Trump for some of his stupid shit, just like I'm willing to call out Wheeler, just like I'm willing to call out Hardesty. But just right now, Hardesty has my main attention. I, but just, you know, in general, I think, because I'm willing to call out everybody equally, did you vote for Trump? Off. I did. And did I, you, I liked Rand Paul. Did you vote for him twice? I did. I liked Rand Paul, and I wanted to vote for him, but he, he gave up. And so I didn't like Hillary. I, I just think I don't like Hillary for various reasons, so I couldn't vote for her. And Biden, I wasn't really a fan of his either. And so, you know, I voted for Trump both times. I'm not sure who I'll vote for in 2014 or 2024, but I like DeSantis. I don't, I think Trump, I like Trump. And I think he needs to realize he's done. He, we need to move on. He's too old. And I really hope we get a DeSantis ticket in I hope that Trump gets your memo. He's, he, he, I, I, I don't think he's going to, the, to the extent he decides not to run, I don't think we're going to learn about that until the day he's forced to announce yeah. And, you know, he, he was so divisive. And, like, as far as just, like, governance, I think he did a really, really good job for governance. For go he, he was a very solid conservative politician, but he just mucked it up by his mouth. Yeah. I, I just think he <laughs> he's a politician, but he was such a garbage human being. It was difficult for me. Yeah. To separate his garbage as a human being from his politics. Mm -hmm. Although, I will be the first to tell you that I, I thought a lot of his politics were dead on. The school reopening, um, the vaccines, that was Operation Warp Speed. That was Trump. Mm -hmm. The only reason we have these COVID vaccines, the reason we were able to save a lot of these elderly, immunocompromised, and morbidly obese people was because of Trump. Right, and you know, the local media is already going after DeSantis, calling him a meaner, smarter Trump, which just kind of makes him sound cooler. But you know, he's made, he's done so many things right, keeping schools open. Oh, so Dexter Filkins, who wrote the New York article about DeSantis, which everybody should read, he's a fabulous journalist, and The New Yorker is one of the few publications that will spend money to send, they don't do, nobody does this anymore. They will spend money to send journalists out and work on a story for like a year. And Filkins went to DeSantis' hometown and interviewed everybody. I mean, he interviewed his dad. He interviewed, you know, uh, people from DeSantis' childhood. He was able to describe in incredible detail what DeSantis' very humble upbringings were like in Florida and sort of what the tenor of that neighborhood was like from talking to various people who lived there at the, that time. He talked to the people. You, you know, I had no idea until I read that article that he was with the SEALs in Iraq 
I mean, he was mm. he was their JAG lawyer. That was what yeah, he decided. I knew he was. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's what he decided to do with his legal education to serve. But it, and and it's not a glowing article. I mean, it's the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. It is real journalism, which you don't see at all anymore, and includes some analysis. But to the extent that it's stuff that um, DeSantis did right, that it's stuff that he issues that he was correct on, issues that he saw earlier than most people. Filkins acknowledges all of this so I'm, I'm not saying it was it wasn't it, when I say it wasn't a glowing article I don't mean it was a takedown piece I mean it was a real piece of journalism because it was neither a takedown piece nor a puff piece about DeSantis it was just the real outline outlay about him and his background and and the article began with Jay Bhattacharya who sort of became Twitter famous on COVID for his um, I think he was part of the Barrington Declaration and sort of became famous on on COVID Twitter about his um, you know moderation and his, his more moderate viewpoint about what was really going on in terms of COVID and how it wasn't probably wasn't going to kill you know three year olds and we didn't really need to mask preschoolers etc. And apparently that that's where the article starts. And Jay Bhattacharya is saying what impressed him so much about Ron DeSantis was the way. DeSantis, DeSantis, is, for one thing, he's incredibly freaking smart. And if he didn't get a perfect score on the SATs, he got close. I, it may have been perfect. But anyway, Filkins outlines all that. He goes to Ivy League schools. I think he starts at Yale. Um, and then, or at some point, he ends up at Yale. And uh, he's sort of the pride of his town, really. And his dad is just, like, beyond proud of him, as, as you would be of a son of that caliber. And Bhattacharya was just talking about how, like, look, this guy isn't a medical doctor, but he's he's read all the literature. Like, he's he is reading the studies himself, and then he's not some dummy who's going out and interpreting themselves. He's calling in the Bhattacharyas and the other epidemiologist doctors who know about COVID and he brought them all to the table and he could speak fluently about each and every single study. And I found that really impressive. I was totally blown away by that. And then the decisions that he made after that, many, many, many of which turned out to be true, many of which the New York Times and Dexter Filkins in the New York article. And then he went on Andrew Sullivan's podcast, who I love, the Dish cast. And uh, he and Andrew Sullivan were talking about it. And I think that was the one where he called him, uh, he, I think on Andrew Sullivan, I remember him calling, saying he's a kind of a smarter, meaner Trump. But he said, um, I just think, he, he said, you know, we, we, he, he may have, he, and this is a left-leaning guy, Dexter Filkins, the guy who wrote the article. He said, I, I think he may have really been right about COVID. And, and we just didn't know. And that's what's so interesting. that He was smart enough to see that before the, the rest of us. He was calm enough to sit there and just read through articles while the rest, while everybody else was just throwing stuff against the refrigerator and, and filling in skate parks and waiting to see what would stick. Yeah, and you know, there's a reason so many people from California and New York are moving to Florida right now. I know. And he made, and he made all the right decisions. Recently, Oregon released their educational results over the last couple of years over COVID. And you know, locking kids out of school, especially for people, minorities, was disastrous. We're talking about reading levels years and years behind where they should be. You know, and just touching on school in general, I mean, if you graduate high school, you should be a functional citizen in society. But, you know, we're constantly pushing that off. Like, oh, your brain's not formed to you're 25. 
So you're not responsible for any of your decisions as far as some of the um, criminal reforms that have recently happened. And it's just this continuing infantization of people that I think is not helping. Well, and I agree. I mean, yes, the data says that their brain is not formed until they're 25, a million percent, which is why, like, they're young now and they listen to me. So at every chance I get, I say things like don't make any major decisions until after you're 25 do not get married until after you're 25 do not you know etc cetera, etc cetera. but I, w- I will say i agree with you i think there's an infantilization of young adults of teens yeah and as far as that i think it's really interesting there was a push a couple years ago to move the voting age to 16. and so it's like a 16 oh my god to vote so a 16-year-old is responsible enough to vote, but they're not responsible enough to sign, like, a student loan. And it's just... I'm sorry. It, it, really that weird. sounds like something Portland would do. In fact, don't give them any ideas. We can't talk anymore about mm-hmm. 16-year-olds voting because that's going to be the first thing they're going to enact, a 16-year-old voting law. I don't know. Is that federal? Can they do that? <laughs> Oh, they yeah, might yeah. do it for it's local elections. They might do it. I, yeah, it's a constitution. That's right. It's constitution. But I can see Portland creating something that 16-year-olds can put. Some unofficial position that 16-year-olds can put. That would be their dream, to have 16-year-olds running. Because they basically are now. And you know what? When you were talking about uh, Randy Weingarten rewriting history and talking about how we always wanted schools open and gaslighting the shit out of parents like me who were trying to work um, and my and my husband were trying to work full time trying to run it trying to run a business and um, fulfill duties to our clients and uh, teach these children and log on fifty times a day it was a huge mess. Um, you know what else is going on? Joanne Hardesty is gaslighting us, all of us, and making us think that she has supported police and efforts to reduce crime all along. She was tooting her own horn on this for a full thread about how much she was able to defund, how much she accomplished, how she, um, this is the biggest defunding we have ever seen. And I, I, we can do more. In fact, she lamented the fact that the police were not defunded by $50 million. Wrap your mind around that. $50 million. Let's see. Here we go. Uh, spent 16 months trying to defund PPB. This is all from her own tweets. So um, this one is from uh, August of 2020. Um, she has no trust in, in PPB. Well, now now all she talks about is how we do need police and we need them to solve crimes. Okay. August of 2020, she says, we can't trust PPB. And this is this part is a quote. If we could trust PPB, we would not have people in the streets every single night. Um, 6, 1620, she writes, this is the third time in 16 months our office has proposed defunding PPB. And we have not received support in defunding these units. So she's criticizing her colleagues in not defunding along with her for the last um, 16 months and, f- and, and only getting it done in June of 2020. Here's another one. June 17th, 2020. I understand the disappointment that council did not get to the $50 million reduction. Imagine. Imagine for a moment if we had done what she wanted and defunded the police by 50 million dollars 
we know what will happen because it happened in Minneapolis. They defunded their police department by huge amounts, and it was absolutely disastrous. And they actually, you know, recently they revoted their funding. But I think a big problem with Hardesty and the commission was getting rid of the uh, the gang enforcement task force. The gun violence because, reduction team. Yeah, because they, they cannot say the word gang because, you know, racial connotation. But I think we have to have some basic common sense where you know gangs and you know the oregonian did an article about this showing you know blacks are being shot at huge amounts being shot by other blacks but we just can't acknowledge that fact and you know these these the gang reduction team was out there establishing relationships getting to know the players and it was a huge mistake in my opinion to defund them okay here i just found it so the actual amount that she de- was able to defund the police for with the ascension of city council, we can't forget them. I mean, they, they signed on to this. $27 million. $27 million total. I had no idea it was that high. This is from her Twitter feed. June 17th, 2020. Today's city council voted to adopt the city's 2021 budget. So 2020 through 2021 budget, which included cutting $27 million from Portland Police Bureau's budget. This includes a $15 million reduction by defunding several specialty units with the most racially unjust practices and outcomes, as you were just pointing out. A $12 million reduction in response to the mayor's call for a 5.6% reduction for all general fund bureaus. All in all, Portland Police final adopted budget is 6% less than last year's budget. What we did was considered unimaginable two weeks ago. Never been done before. Um, and she says $15 million in defunding gun violence reduction team, which you were just talking about, that directly went to combating gang violence. School resource officers. School resource officers? I mean, there was just gunfire in front of Franklin High School. Yeah, it, it took them, a, like, the police an hour and a half to react. I know. I, I and So school resource officers defunded. Transit officers defunded. Eliminating eight positions on the special emergency response team. Um, I mean, this is just redirected $2.3 million in recreational cannabis tax revenue from funding the PPB's traffic division. So we don't care about fatal traffic accidents anymore. We don't care about well, not, DUIs. Well, not only that... You know, they, they uh, severely restricted police's ability to even pull over and pursue criminals. I know. And like, you can be, a, okay, you can drive around in Portland completely legally with no license plates. I know. And, and you have to assume someone driving around with a license plate kind of up to no good. There is, okay, do you follow this Instagram account? There's actually, there is a really good Instagram account about this. I have to pull it up because it's so funny. Um, It just cracks me up. I mean, especially if you're not from here, you should check out this Instagram account because it's, it it just really helps document what is going on around here in the city of Portland. It's like the no plates. Have you followed that? No, I I, I do follow like, I think what the F Portland, which shows. Well, that's a great one. Yeah. No, I haven't followed no plates one. I'll check it out. But it's great because it, it it just takes all it does. It's 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 you know all it does is is take a photo. It's called no plates PDX. No underscore plates underscore PDX. 
And it's just funny because this all this person does is drive around all day and document people who don't have license plates. And I swear to God, this person posts a hundred times a day. I mean, we see it, but we see it so much we stop seeing it, at least I do. And I find that that's true about like homeless people too. You know, people come from out of town and they're like, oh my God, what's with all the bodies splayed out in all the gutters? And it's like, why are you just walking past these people? And I'm like, because this is how we live. Like they're, this is, they're allowed to do this. I mean, I would be considered harassing them if I touched them at all or tried to wake them up or something. And they're all armed. So I'm not interested in doing that. And you know, just for the sake of your listeners, I should reveal that, you know, I spent, so when I, once I moved to Portland, I lost my job in 2008. And so, you know, I spent, I would say in total about two years completely homeless myself. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. No, you know, it happened. Where, how were you living then? I was living, okay, there's a school, basically my day was boring. Uh, There was a school on, um... Um, Belmont that I used to sleep in on the little bench there. You know, I was, I never lived, I avoided downtown. I avoided other homeless people. I didn't take use of any of the services. I was never on drugs. And so I was probably one of those silent homeless people that you would never know was homeless. But eventually, you know, I was able to get off the street with the help of the VA association and, uh, Central City Concern, which I know they get a lot of criticism, but you know, they did help me and I was able to get off the street. Uh, This was in 2016, I got off the street. And so, you know, now I'm in college and so just moving forward. So you were just literally living on the street? Like, why weren't you in a shelter? Because we have incredible services to get people into housing from shelter. If you get into a shelter, we have an, an incredible... I work for a lot of these shelters and they have incredible ways to hook you up with housing in some, in some instances, relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I spent, I would say in total on and off about maybe two, two and a half years homeless. And I, part of it was, I guess I was uninformed and I was also kind of scared about, and you know, this was back when homeless were a little bit nicer in like 2016 before the hard drugs came into issue and I had just heard horror stories, but you know, eventually I had to swallow my pride. I hooked up with the VA and they were able to help me get off the street. They funded a shelter stay. And let me say like Central City Concern, you know, there's a lot of criticism about the homeless industrial complex, but you know, they did hook me up with services and I genuinely, you know, people say shelters are such horrible places. You can't have pets. You can't use drugs. But I think some of those restrictions are actually helpful for people to get off the street. And I think we really need to address some of the drug crimes or some of the drug usage. But you didn't utilize a shelter, which I think is so interesting. What did you do during the raining months? Did you pitch a tent? No, you know what? I was crazy. I did it hardcore. All I had was a blanket and a pillow I carried in a backpack. And, you know, I never had a tent. I would just sleep in front of this uh, garden on a Belmont school. And one time some person was kind enough to lend me a blanket. And there's also this other little statue I used to sleep on in Southeast until the neighbor kicked me out. But 
I was just hardcore. I would just bundle up, cover myself with a blanket and a pillow and sleep wherever. I was probably one of the more extreme people, but uh, yeah, that's just how the radio months did suck. They sucked really, really bad. I said I slept in a porta potty a couple nights. Oh my but God. yeah, rainy season, rainy season, I spent a lot of time at the library, a lot of time. Well, they all do. And yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to understand the logic behind that. Like, did you not have relatives that you could move in with or friends that you could? Because generally when you look at the, if you talk to join the joint offices of, of homeless services, they'll they will count as homeless like not just the people out on the streets but you know and, and this makes sense i mean they're technically homeless people who are couch surfing people who are living in mom and dad's basement etc you had no option like that no um my mom died in 2015. i'm sorry and I haven't, oh no no it's fine and i i don't even spoke with my dad since about 2003. my brother lives in illinois one friend and i you know, I guess being a Virgo, I don't like imposing on people. And, you know, I just suffer. Being a Virgo? Call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to understand the psychology behind this. And I think we're all, everybody listening is going to be curious. Like, you would rather sleep in the Portland rain on a bench uncovered than call your brother in Illinois? You, you know, just me personally, yes. Why? Really Why is big. that? I, I guess me and my brother aren't super close anymore, but... But I, don't I think you think just... he would have said, Philip, I'm sending you a bus ticket. You're going to come no and live in my spare bedroom. This is ridiculous. Why would you pursue this for two years? I don't have a good explanation. I guess I'm just stubborn. I don't like accepting help, but I did eventually, you know, I got over my, and you know, speaking, I've spoke with so many homeless people. I don't think a lot of people realize some people do choose that home, that lifestyle. Yes, that's and, right. And I guess, in a, and I guess in a way I was choosing that lifestyle. Yeah, I, I suppose so, since you had options, but why? Why it, 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 did you really feel like being homeless in Portland and being rained on and sleeping on a bench was preferable to sucking it up and calling your brother? I mean, you must have. Okay, like, like I said, only speaking for myself, I would rather suffer than inconvenience my brother. And like, I, I know that's crazy. Maybe I just don't have those tight familiar bonds everyone else has. But I just think, you know, I've lived a variety of lifestyles. You know, my dad was upper middle class. I lived, he, he raised us. My parents got divorced young. My mother was dirt, dirt poor. Like we're talking about, she would pick cigarettes out of the gutter to smoke. And so I really, you know, I got to see both sides of a situation. Um, I got to see what it would like to be rich. I got to see what it would like to be poor. Then, you know, I was in the very military. Poor. Very poor very poor then i live with my then i joined the military so i was in combat units very male macho culture then i worked in healthcare for several years which is a very female dominated culture and i've just had all these varied experiences seeing every side every issue which i think has really helped form my opinion and analysis so were you homeless 
during Charlie Hale's safe sleep policy? That was 2016? Uh, yeah. And like I said, um, I was hiding. Like, there was a school in Belmont. I think it's called Blinko. And I would sleep on a little um, bench. I was only roused twice. Once, you know, I was stupid. I slept there during the day and the, and the security officer kicked me out. But for years, you know, I slept there with no problem. And as far as living downtown, the sit lay law, I, I never slept downtown, so I was never wrestled. And then uh, you were fed what, by food banks and churches and things? Oh, SNAP. All you have to do as a homeless person in Portland is to walk into SNAP, say you're homeless, and boom, 200 bucks a month for food. But, you know, also being homeless, you can't buy hot food and you know, it gets to be a bitch to carry around food. But like, and you know, it's weird. And maybe I'm probably, I shouldn't say this, but being homeless, like a lot of stresses of life just disappear. I I have to say like my life while boring was, was happy. And I, it probably may say, maybe sound weird to you. No, I think it's very, I think it's fascinating. And here's why. I'll tell you why. I received a message from a listener. I am homeless. I have been for years. I love being homeless. Sounds weird, but I don't like people. I love living alone. I also have a quote unquote part-time job parentheses take that to mean what you will so i i mean that may or may not be illegal i don't know so i he's continuing with his message i i am pretty set if you did ever walk past me you would never know and i said i responded and i said thank you for listening thank you for reaching out um i as you know i'm assuming since you're a listener i have homeless have had and have a homeless family member and I'm glad that you're okay and I'm this your message made me sad and he said no I love it I'm doing wonderful um I'm doing good I don't have to do really anything I'm I have no problem being fed meals I feel like I have a free ride and if I really needed to, I could get a job for that paid me a lot of money because Portland pays people so much here and they call it a living wage. And I've been offered jobs for 23, between 23 and 25 dollars that I just haven't taken because I just don't like people and I like what I'm doing. Yeah, I, should, uh, I had a, a part-time job, actually, for part of the time I was homeless, and so I was working. And I think a lot of homeless people, you see, I would call it like a silent majority of homeless, you would never know they're homeless. You know, they have a giant backpack, they sleep in their car, and you would never know. But since the 2015 homeless declaration, um, and, you know, the delegalization of hard drugs is just been a horrible decision like you know i never begged i never committed crimes i was just i just did my own thing and just we're just making some horrible decisions on legalizing some of the criminal activity that we're doing here's a question so when you were homeless 
were you did it just not occur to you to go to the VA and use your benefits? Um, I think every veteran is has horror stories about the VA, and I just heard so many horror stories that I was I was scared of, of taking talking to VA. But I have to say, the VA gets a lot of hate nationally, which it probably deserves. But I've received nothing but exceptional care in the Portland VA system. And I'm really impressed. And I, I've advocated it to other Portland veterans. I've been really, really impressed with specifically just our Portland system. Well, I think my understanding is, and I've worked for some, I've had some doctors as clients who uh, work for the VA that's part of, o, I think it's part of OHSU. Is it not? Yeah, or they have one. Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, they OHSU, a, that's a pretty premier institution. Mm-hmm. And they also have a really awesome uh, homeless vet- veteran clinic in Old Town. And, you know, once I swallowed my pride and got help, you know, I quickly found housing. And, you know, I got on some medications that really helped me physically. And, you know, tell me about me that. What was, I mean, I don't want to get too personal, but what were you, what were you suffering from? I, I, I'm not going to say. Okay. This, it's personally, it's, it's, it's private. I'm going to keep it private. Sure, of course. But just some, yeah, just some issues. But like I said, I've been highly, highly impressed with the Portland VA system. And, you know, and even Central City Concern, like I, I know some of their, I, I definitely have complaints about their system, but I don't think it's too much to ask people, you know, to give up drugs. And I and maybe they have to separate couples, but, you know, it's a very effective. But, you know, I should say, though, I, I was lucky. You know, I had the VA had my back. And there are certain programs available for me that weren't available to other people in the Central City Concern shelter like i i stayed there for i would say longer than most people i want to say it was almost six months from like a november to a may 2016. and so i saw the same people coming around again and again and again and it was just kind of sad that is sad and, and again i don't want to get too personal but i wonder um i don't know if you know my story my dad Mm-mm. was homeless and it wasn't a drug issue. My sister's homeless. That is a drug issue. She has, She's on opioids and has been for over 20 years. And I haven't seen her in over 20 years. But my... It might be exactly 20. I think it is exactly 20 years. Um, but my dad was homeless because of mental health issues. And I think if he... He'd finally found the VA. Um because he he was a liability to my sister whose sole focus was scoring drugs um and i think she you know just kind of drained his bank account and took like every dime that he had and then because he had nothing and because he was ill he sort of uh, followed her around the country and she sort of uh, ditched him at a hospital because he be, just became too much of a liability for her and her quest for whatever she needed to do to fulfill her addiction. And that is how he and I ended up getting back in touch right before he, he ended up having a stroke, which may or may not, it, it may have been related. His health was horrific. But the point is, he finally was hooked up with the VA and given the medication that he needed to 
really stabilize at least um i mean mental illness in my family is rampant and practically expected um i think because uh there's just it's it's i mean i i'm i don't take any medication but i've had a therapist since as long as i can remember and i don't see myself stopping anytime soon um and i've struggled with things like panic disorder and anxiety disorder i i um I just think mental health issues are really tough. Uh, but I will say, and this was in Vegas, so I will say the one thing about the VA, and it made, I'm sure it's a patchwork, I'm sure it's not great everywhere, but at least, like I said, as far as I know, the VA here seems to do pretty well, and the VA in Vegas really saved my dad's life. I mean, they, they got him off the street, they got him into a group home with other veterans. He had he, he had a bed, he had meals, he, there was a dog, at the he loved animals, there was a dog at the house, they had a swimming pool, they had access to a library, they had social caseworkers. Um, and I just wonder, and I don't, again, don't answer if this is too personal, but I wonder if... Um, if maybe what was going on was, uh, and, and maybe it was, I'm not saying you're in the DSM or anything, but maybe there was some some mental illness going on that was preventing you from, from seeking out those services that, that were there. I, I, I think that's fair. Uh, fair. I think that's a fair assumption. And yeah, that's a, that's a fair assumption. And don't you wish that we had a program, especially in Oregon, we're terrible. I think we're the worst at mental health. Isn't that your understanding? Like my, my understanding from the statistics is that we are dead last. And if we had a system in place, like Joanne's freaking street response or whatever, that is not cutting it. We need a system in place to help people like my dad and who was not in Oregon, but still um, to help people like him to to have maybe made contact with you and and said, sir, you do not need to be sleeping on this bench. You're a veteran. We take care of our veterans. Come to this OHSU facility, which is fabulous, and we can get you hooked up. Or Central City Concern. Like, where was Central City Concern while you were homeless for two years? Well, you know, they said they do, uh, um, you know, they do a homeless count every year. I was never Yeah, the approached. point in time. Yeah, I was never approached. I was, uh, uh, when I eventually hooked up with central city concern then i was counted but yeah you know they say they send all these people out but i never saw anyone but isn't that heartbreaking that's heartbreaking to me i think that's wrong but the homeless situation civil liberties are really really hard to deal with because these people who are extremely mentally ill or on drugs you can't you know, especially in most states, especially in Oregon, you can't forcibly commit these people. And so, you that's know, right. it's a really, you know, being a lawyer, I'm sure you're aware how that that's a really tough intersection, civil liberties, commitment. Yeah, it's and, very you know, complicated. We, you know, and, you know, we used to have, you know, these huge mental institutions that got shut down in the 70s because of the Gerardo interview, the Gerardo, the, I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, but... Gerardo Herrera, he did a huge expose of some of the- Geraldo Rivera. I think it started even before then. Um, There's a really good book about mental health facilities. And according to this book, it really started with uh, the Kennedys. Um, Because Rosemary Kennedy, of course, Mm -hmm. had an intellectual disability. 
but people with intellectual disabilities were warehoused and they were treated poorly and they were given lobotomies, et cetera. And it made John F. Kennedy and and Robert and and their very powerful family, and and I think they were a very compassionate Catholic family, it made them sick and they wanted to see that fixed. And so according to this, I'll link it in the show notes. I can't find it right, right away. But um, according to this book, it kind of started as early as, you know, the 60s of, yeah. of this idea that we shouldn't be institutionalizing mentally ill people against their will. And I, I truly believe that it was because of, and according to this book, that it was because of the state of the facility, not necessarily because they shouldn't, I mean, maybe Rosemary shouldn't have been institutionalized, but like certainly we shouldn't have been lobotomizing these people. We shouldn't have been sterilizing these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horrible civil rights violations. I would like to think that we could do it in a kinder method. Um, I worked with intellectually disabled people uh, in Illinois in some of the group homes they had facilitated. And some of the people who had been in the institutions, you know, like you say, they were castrated. And I think he right. might have also, his name is Chuck. There's probably a good chance he'd been lobotomized. But he would hide under the table to safeguard his food when eating because other people used to steal it from him in the institutions. But I'd like to think that we could find a way to maybe take care of these diseased homeless people in a more compassionate manner. It's just, it's so sad. Okay, so here it is. The book is called American Psychosis, and it's by E. Fuller Torrey, MD. Um, And it really details, I don't know, I recommend it to anybody who's interested in the history of mental illness because it really helps explain why we... It, people think it started with the Reagan administration. It didn't. It's The subtitle is How the Federal Government Destroyed the Mental Illness Treatment System. So, um, you know, in 1963, that was when President Kennedy delivered this speech on mental illness and retard. They called it retardation. And he wanted new programs to replace the treatment of all these millions and millions of mentally disabled people, like his sister Rosemary, with treatment in community mental health centers. Well, that you know that started this deinstitutionalization and now here we are living in portland oregon and it's like the set of the walking dead and i know believe me i know that a lot of that's drugs but i interviewed this woman named terry anderson whose son was schizophrenic who ended up on drugs but his issue his initial that's that was a comorbidity his initial issue was not drugs it was schizophrenia but she had nowhere to put him and he was a danger to her and her young children. So he was just out on the streets. I mean, what do we do yeah. with that? And there are states. Now, I will say, Philip, this is not a federal thing. I mean, there are states, Utah, for example. I, I have a family member, and I can't talk in too much depth about this because of the sensitive nature of it, but I do have a family member who is really struggling and who we can utilize Utah laws and Utah laws are not as libertarian as, as these West Coast states like Oregon, Washington, California. There are ways to get people who are suffering mentally institutionalized. And it really there really aren't a lot of hurdles. Hmm. I mean, for good or for bad. And I don't know what these institutions look like. I think in a perfect world, they would all look like a beautiful hospice. 
you know, I, I, I don't, I, I use that word because I, um, I, my grandparents died in hospice and my mom unfortunately died in a hospital room, but wanted to go to hospice because it was so beautiful and you were treated so well. And, you know, they had piano and they had nice meals and they, it was, it was just, everybody was sweet. Everybody treated you very kindly. And I think that's what we would all hope for a mental health institution. And I think we all want to see a mental health institution that looks like a place where parents feel comfortable dropping off their very ill family members. Right. And I think also today we have so many more legal safeguards that would help protect some of those civil liberties and just like personal respect issues. So I don't know, maybe we should try it again. And, you know, I'm really, really, really surprised. I mean, we've talked about so many different things in this interview. It's kind of yeah. crazy to me. Well, sorry, I've taken you all over twists no. and turns, and I really appreciate you coming on. And I right, appreciate I really your Twitter it. feed. And, um, okay, so what what's coming up next? Like, what are you what, what are you going to be digging into next? Well, like I said, I interview, I, uh, I'm testifying in front of the city council, I believe on Wednesday. We'll see how that goes. We're excited 40, about that. I, I wanna, I'm really interested if Joanne reacts either in person or on Twitter. And so I'm just really, and let's face it, a lot, I'm not going to change anyone's opinion. Anyone's going to vote for Joanne is going to vote for Joanne. And whoever's going to vote for Renee is going to vote for Renee. But I just wish the local news, like, to, like speaking of Renee, like a lot of the information I found was publicly available. And I really wish he would have did some Apple research because coming, coming from him, it would be a lot more effective than it is coming from me. And like I said, I've, yeah. I've emailed every, like I said, I've emailed every single media organization in town to cover this, including OPB. No one cares. I can't, uh, I was talking about, I think his name's James Pose. I had mentioned him right. much, much earlier. Right, uh, Hardesty's old staffer. Right. And he told about what a nasty person she is in private. But um, I don't know if you, like, I, I'm subscribed to the Joanne Hardesty mailing list now since I made her a donation. And her new campaign manager, I believe his name's Reverend Santos. Oh, you know for Joanne? some reason I thought it was Tony. Okay, it's yeah, a Reverend. It's, it's yeah, Reverend Santos. Okay. Do you know Joanne's not going to have a picture in the voter pamphlet? Which I think I is do really know that. interest. I do right. know that. He filed all the information, all the endorsements, all the educational, the military history, but he forgot her picture. I can't believe that's not, it just, I don't know, is that intentional? I mean, I, I, I imagine everyone knows what Joanne Hardesty looks like. It's just a really weird oversight. And, you know, I think that the as a Portlander as and as a person who probably in any red state would be considered a progressive and a person who thinks representation matters, I would think her photo would be a selling point. She's a black yeah. woman. Why would you, Portlanders love representation. Why would you not put a photo of yourself showing everybody that you're a black woman in the voters pamphlet? If it was by design, what possible design decision was that? Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I have to imagine it was just a stupid mistake, but it's certainly interesting. Well, it's also interesting because she's an incumbent. It's not like she hasn't been at this rodeo before. 
Mm-hmm. She's not brand new to this. She didn't just um, one of my fr- what did one of my friends say? Um, something like a surprise candidacy. <laughs> like, she's not a surprise candidate. Um, yeah, isn't well, that interesting? Well, it's not the first time, you know. You know, she hasn't. You know, Reverend Santos came out and said it was his fault, but it's not the first time Joanne's passed the buck during her. Her, her IRS difficulties and her paying her credit card difficulties and her NACCP difficulties, it was always someone else's fault. Well, she said it was because of her divorce and she, it was because of campaigning and she was just too busy campaigning to set up an auto pay on these two Bank of America credit cards, which she was sued for for over $16,000. And then she didn't show up in court. The Oregonian, April 10th, 2022. This person lives in Beaverton, but she knew she knew of Joanne Hardesty. She knew it was her. Saw Joanne Hardesty playing a game called Buffalo at the Chinook Winds Casino. And then she read Shane Kavanaugh's story about the $16,000 default judgment. And um, here's what happened. Uh... Judge Matarazzo in Multnomah County Circuit Court ordered Joanne to appear to address her default. So she was defaulted. She ordered her to appear to address. So she gave her a second chance. She said, get in here and address these default issues with these two Bank of America cards. 36 hours later, Joanne was at Chinook Winds playing Buffalo. So this is from the Oregonian, April 10th, 2022. Hmm. And, you know, the whole Chinook wins brings into the Lyft driver incident, which, you know, and she verbally abused that poor guy and has never, ever apologized to him. Her rideshare driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was when she, um, she went to a casino in Washington during the heat of lockdown in Oregon, is my understanding, Right. So this mm-hmm. was like November 2020. This was like when people were making jokes about how we can't have anybody over for Thanksgiving because the SWAT team's going to break down the door if they know we're serving a turkey that feeds eight to six. So uh, it's it's uh, November 12th, 2020, and she has a lift ride. And, and this is from um, this is from the Oregonian too, November 12th, 2020. She has a lift ride. Maxine Bernstein did the story. And she gets into the lift car And the policy, and I thought we all knew this because of COVID, the policy for ride shares was the windows stay down to allow for ventilation to help prevent against COVID. And she got upset. She didn't want the windows down. She said she was cold. The driver stopped the ride and said, I'm cutting this ride short. We're not doing this because you're not following policy. And um, she wouldn't get out. He took her to a gas station and tried to drop her off, and she wouldn't get out, and she called 911. Now, this is after she, remember her tweets from Mm -hmm. June of 2020? Yep. Where she's applauding herself for defunding the police to the tune of $27 million and unfortunately didn't get to the $50 million. Um, She calls the police. She calls the very people that she says cannot be trusted, and we know they can't be trusted, as she said in her tweet, because otherwise people wouldn't be out marching in the streets. She calls 911, and um, there are dual, apparently dual calls between her and the driver because the driver needs to get her out of his car. 
She says it's totally inappropriate to expect a woman to get out of the vehicle in the dead of night. There were, because she had crossed state lines due to lockdown in Oregon, couldn't go to a, I, I, I'm assuming she couldn't go to the beach in Oregon. And that's why she went up to Washington. That's my assumption. Total heat of lockdown. Like, I think we were under an outdoor mask mandate at this point. That's how loony we were down here. And she's at a casino. Um, and I think that didn't the governor issue a recommendation saying like, don't spend Thanksgiving with your families, don't intermix, don't invite friends over, et cetera. Um, she said that it was inappropriate to expect a woman to get out of a vehicle in the dead of night and, and the, and the dispatch records were from Clark County. So the Lyft rider who would handle more than 18,000 rides said he had no idea who she was. He just said she was not a pleasant person. He said, I have no idea about her politics in Portland, but she was disrespectful to me. She made me uncomfortable. This is for all from the Oregonian article. I don't feel like I have to sit in a car for anyone to have to argue unrelentingly and be rude and abusive telling me what I have to do in my own vehicle. And he said he had accepted a pickup from her. He drove 25 minutes north to the casino in Ridgefield, waited five minutes, um, gave her a call because he he didn't see her she showed up and he said it just went south from there um he finally figured out where she was waiting um she was mad that he had trouble finding her he grabbed his phone and showed her where the pin drop was and was trying to calm her down and she got madder she didn't want to hear any of that and wasn't happy with that and then she was mad that the windows were rolled down i mean it just it's one thing after another yeah you know i there's a lot of horrible personalities in politics. So I won't condemn her for that. But as far as some of the NACP violations she made, like for example, writing checks to her own consulting company, violating their bylaws for having a treasurer sign it. You know, she has no financial management skills whatsoever. And it's scary that, you know, she sits on city council. What do you say to people, though, who say don't criticize her personal problems or the fact that she can't pay her credit card debt, criticize her policies? You know, I think they make a valid point. They, they make a valid point. And I think, you know, it's a really tough situation for me. I mean, you know, especially, okay, being a commissioner, one, you think you want to legitimize government. And so if you're called in front of a judge, you want to appear in front of the judge. If you're city commissioner, you also want to pay the IRS. And I think that just says certain things about her. You mean about taking care of what responsibilities, personal responsibilities, or what, what are you speaking to specifically? Well, like I said, just being elected member of government, like I was just saying that, you know, you, if the judge calls you in front of them, you probably want to go and you probably want to pay your taxes if you're advocating your fellow citizen to pay their taxes. And, well, a lot of taxes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Multnomah County voters have the highest taxes in the country. You know, it's not like... yeah. There's a lot of projects yeah. that she needs, she wants us to fund, that she wants us to write checks for. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the interview clips that they're releasing for their endorsement interviews, they're 
they're fire. I mean, have you seen those? There's one where they're they... They're not yet. Well, they're fabulous. There's, there's one in particular where um, it may have been Willamette Week who says, well, what do you think would happen if we only had five police officers? Do you think crime would go down? And Joanne says, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I mean, would the five police officers be the only ones with guns? I don't know. And Renee just very calmly just says, well, I'll tell you what will happen. Crime will go up. I mean, it's, it's the, the clash of policies between the two of them is absolutely clear. And for one thing, she's compromised. She's beholden to the teachers' unions, and he's not. But he was one of the few people openly criticizing the Oregon for keeping schools shut. Yeah, no, he helped, he helped lead uh, the yeah. group that opened schools. He and Kim McGare mm-hmm. and Leslie Bynan, th- those are the pe- those are the reason, those people are the reasons that those schools were open and that we were the penultimate to last schools to open as opposed to like being like California and being the very last schools to open. And mark my words, without people like Renee Gonzalez, those schools could still be closed today. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah. The amount of time that they were closed and those arguments that those teachers were making and those those screeds that some of those people were writing about how, uh, you know, like a, a Portland parent slash preschool teacher did a piece in Medium, I think it was, about how opening schools is racist. I mean, that, that kind of garbage, that would have continued ad infinitum. Yeah, no doubt. But this white supremacy stuff and all these other uh, insults that people are hurling at him uh, are trained to nowhere. I mean, this guy's the son of a, a guy who grew up as a Mexican farm worker. It's just absolutely silly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's Portland, I guess. No, it is Portland, and that's how they shut people up. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. You could be Mingus Maps and be, um, you know, a, bl- a, a black man who went to Cornell and be called racist by Joanne Hardesty. Well, he has been called racist. Yes, she did. She said, if you scrutinize at all these nonprofits who want money from the Clean Energy Fund, that's a racist act. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Philip, what else, did, what else didn't we talk about that you want to talk about or that you want to say? Well, I got to say, I, I'm really shocked by all the different places we went in this interview. And I, you know, maybe just personally, I would love to do this again sometime when I, you know, shoot the shit. I had a really enjoyable time. Yeah, that was fun. And um, best of luck to you with your studies. And I can't wait to see what comes out of your city council meeting. We're all going to be paying attention mm-hmm. to YouTube once it gets uploaded. So hopefully you'll end up doing that. And I, I'm excited to see what the reaction from Joanne is. Me too. All right. Take care, Philip. Talk to you later.